there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. This episode features discussions of gruesome injuries, sexual assault, and graphic detail that some people may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13. Jean Potius struggled up one of the hills overlooking the Haitian capital of Port-au-Prince. The incline seemed endless, but she knew if she didn't make it to higher ground, her life could be in danger again. Less than two days earlier, Jean had survived a 7.0 magnitude earthquake that caused incomprehensible damage to Port-au-Prince. But now, she had to escape one of the earthquake's deadliest side effects, a tsunami. But Jean was no spring chicken, and the earthquake's aftermath had left her battered, bruised, and exhausted. As the terrified crowd of people around her surged towards safety, Jean realized she couldn't make it up the hill. For the past 24 hours, Jean had worked tirelessly to take care of her fellow survivors, sacrificing her own health in the process. And now... As she gazed into the darkness, waiting to hear the inevitable rush of the tidal wave, she realized that her efforts may have cost her own life. Welcome to Survival, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Irma Blanco. And I'm Tim Johnson. Every Monday, we'll take you inside incredible true stories of life or death situations. This is our final episode on Jean Potius, a 52-year-old volunteer music teacher who was caught in an earthquake in Haiti on January 12, 2010. Last week, we explored the circumstances that brought Jean to Haiti and how she became inspired to establish music charity programs throughout the country. But when a devastating 7.0 magnitude earthquake hit, Jean was thrust into a role she had never expected, emergency medic. This week, we'll follow Jean in her efforts to help as many people as she can while she can. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you are listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com merch for more information. 
On the night of January 13, 2010, all Jean Potius wanted to do was to get some sleep. She had been awake for over 24 hours, taking care of patient after patient at her improvised emergency clinic in the parking lot of the Holy Trinity School, where she worked as a volunteer music teacher. Once all her patients had been cared for, Jean went to a makeshift camp at the nearby College St. Pierre to get some rest. But sleep remained elusive. Although she was exhausted to her very core, the events from the past day kept replaying in her head. The cramped confines of her tent felt suffocating. She needed to see the stars over her head. Unfortunately, being out in the open didn't give Jean the comfort she had hoped it would. She was struck with a bone-deep chill that no blanket could overcome. Her body was going into shock, and her blood pressure was dropping. As Jean tried in vain to warm up, three boys came running through the camp, warning that there was a tsunami headed for Port-au-Prince. The ensuing panic was enough to shake Jean from her stupor. She knew she had to find higher ground and fast. If an earthquake occurs on a fault along the ocean floor, the displaced water can generate hugely destructive tidal waves. They can reach up to 100 feet in height and can travel up to 500 miles per hour, about as fast as a jet airplane. If such a wave was headed for Port-au-Prince, it was imperative for Jean and the other survivors to get as high up into the surrounding hills as possible. Jean's goal was to reach the Canapé Vert police station, hopefully located a safe enough distance from any encroaching waters. But she wasn't able to make it that far. Exhausted beyond belief, she had to sit down to rest. All she could do was hope that the tsunami wouldn't reach her. Sitting down and catching her breath allowed her to collect her thoughts. She had a rudimentary understanding of tsunamis, and she remembered that major tsunamis could only form in deep waters. She knew that the bay of Port-au-Prince wasn't especially deep, and there was an island at its mouth that would block anything from reaching the mainland. Jean was correct that Port-au-Prince wouldn't be hit by a massive tidal wave, but there were a few smaller tsunamis that hit the area in the earthquake's aftermath. According to Richard A. Lovett of Nature Journal, at some point after the earthquake, underwater landslides disturbed the Bay of Port-au-Prince's waters enough to form a nearly 10-foot wave. This wave made it over 200 feet inland, tragically taking the lives of an elderly man and his two grandchildren. Although we can't say for sure, this wave may have been what the three boys who came through Jean's camp were trying to warn people about. Whatever the circumstances may have been, by the time Jean had reached the hills, there was no longer any danger from tsunamis. But that didn't mean she was safe. She had to summon the strength to get back to the camp at the College St. Pierre, almost two miles away. Jean planned to stop and rest at the hospital along the way. But when she arrived, she found only ruins. The hospital had collapsed. The only person there was a middle-aged man smoking a cigarette at the entrance, his adolescent son lying dead at his feet. 
The man seemed strangely calm about the situation, but everyone reacts to trauma in different ways. Gene reasoned that he must have been in shock, but he seemed lucid enough. When she told him that she was camped at the College St. Pierre, the man offered to help her find her way back. Gene wasn't so sure. The man reeked of stale beer, and he was a little too willing to leave his son's dead body behind. But she also knew that she couldn't make it back to the college on her own. She reluctantly accepted the man's help. About halfway down the block, the man turned down a dark passageway. Jean grew uneasy. Something didn't seem right. But the man promised it was a shortcut, and Jean felt like she had no other choice. She followed him. Jean struggled to keep up as the man easily navigated the dark, debris-strewn passageway. In her haste, she didn't notice the fallen metal gate lying in her path. The pain of her fall was intense. Tears streamed down Jean's face as she writhed on the ground. When he realized she was no longer behind him, her companion turned around and knelt beside her. Looking up at him through teary eyes, Jean feared what the man might do to her. But he just reached down and helped her to her feet. Jean collapsed in the man's arms, and he gently held her until she was ready to continue. She had been strong for so many others during this crisis. Now, she was relieved that someone could be there for her. For the rest of the way down to the college, the man helped gently guide her along, avoiding any obstacles that might cause her to fall. When they finally reached the camp, the college's bishop had the same initial concerns as Jean regarding the smell of beer wafting off the man. But when Jean told him what the man had done for her, the bishop relented and allowed him to stay. Jean and the man laid down next to each other to try to get some sleep. Though they had barely spoken to each other, Jean was comforted by his presence and was even grateful when he put his arms around her. But then he began to grope her breasts. Jean tried to push him away, but the man grabbed her hands and placed them on his genitals. She wrenched her arm out of his grip and told him in no uncertain terms that nothing sexual was going to happen between them. Much to Jean's relief, the man didn't push the issue further. But many women who survived the earthquake weren't so lucky. With little police presence or electricity around the camps of displaced survivors, sexual assault was rampant. According to an ABC News report from July 2010, authorities said the number of attacks tripled since 2009, with a sense of fear growing along with it. Although Jean could have told the man to leave after what he had done, she decided to let him stay. She felt confident that it had just been a misunderstanding and he wouldn't repeat his behavior. Thankfully, Jean's assumptions were correct and the man kept his hands to himself for the rest of the night. She was finally able to get some rest. When the sun came up on the morning of January 14th, the man quietly rose and gave Jean a chaste kiss on the forehead. It was the last interaction they would ever have. Later that morning, Jean heard that the American embassy was arranging evacuations for all U.S. citizens in Haiti. 
Even though the prospect of returning home to a warm bed was tempting, Jean resolved to stay and help as much as she could. With the intense cold she had felt the night before still fresh in her mind, she decided to return to the Holy Trinity campus and collect the robes, sheets, and towels she had scavenged for her clinic. She planned to use what was left as blankets for children in need. The bishop warned Jean that he didn't have a car to spare. If she wanted to return to Holy Trinity, she would have to walk. Despite still feeling sapped by fatigue, Jean began the mile journey with the help of one of her music students. On her way back, Jean realized she wasn't far from the Office of the Protector of the Citizens, or OPC. When Jean had relocated to Haiti on a more permanent basis in the fall of 2008, the head of the OPC, Florence Elie, had been instrumental in helping her get settled. In fact, she had arranged to get Jean the apartment she had toured right before the earthquake hit. To Jean, it had seemed like so long ago that she had admired the incredible view of Port-au-Prince from the apartment's balcony. In reality, it had been less than three days. Florence was a dear friend, and Jean resolved to check on the OPC office to make sure she was all right. To get to the house that served as OPC headquarters, Jean had to walk by the ruined buildings of the Sacred Heart Hospital, where she had first seen the man with his dead son. Jean noticed that the hospital was totally destroyed, but somehow the cross at the entrance remained standing. As a deeply religious person, Jean took it as a sign that she should persevere through her hardships. When she arrived at the gate guarding the entrance to the OPC, Jean was relieved to see that the structure was still standing. But the question was whether Florence had been inside when the earthquake hit. Noticing that some of the neighbors were out on the street, Jean asked a woman if she knew what had happened to the OPC's employees. The woman told her that she had seen everyone leave the building on the evening of the 12th, after the earthquake. Jean breathed a sigh of relief. That meant Florence was okay. While Jean was writing a note to leave at the office, she heard a man calling her name. It was Dominique, Florence's chauffeur. He offered to take Jean to Florence's house, where she could rest and leave her things before heading back to Holy Trinity. Getting up into the hills where Florence's house was located wasn't easy. Fallen buildings had blocked the streets, forcing Dominique to constantly turn around and look for alternate routes. Dust still choked the air, and pedestrians had to wear masks, handkerchiefs, or shirts over their mouths and noses to protect their lungs. What broke Jean's heart the most was seeing the frantic parents searching for their children in the ruins of decimated schools. Nearly every school they passed had collapsed. She shuddered at the thought of how many children had been trapped inside when the quake hit. The only solace was that the earthquake had happened just before 5 p.m. By then, the school day would have been over. Fewer students would have been left inside. As the SUV ascended further and further into the hills, the damage started looking less severe. Although some buildings had still collapsed, many others remained standing. Such was the case with Florence's house, which seemed unharmed. 
When Jean entered Florence's house, it was almost like she was setting foot in a different world. Here was Florence, her smile lighting up the room. Here was a cup of hot coffee in Jean's hands, warming her soul as much as it warmed her body. Even better, there was running water. Jean could take a shower. As Jean washed off several days' worth of dirt and debris, she was finally beginning to feel a sense of normalcy returning. Although she was battered and bruised, she was thankful to be in one piece. She knew she was lucky. After getting cleaned up, Jean was eager to get back to Holy Trinity, but Florence insisted that she lay down and rest for a bit. Jean grudgingly relented. It was 4.30 in the afternoon when she closed her eyes. She didn't wake up until 6 a.m. the next morning. The moment Jean woke up, she was hit by the full force of what she had endured over the past several days. Her whole body was in pain. She wanted nothing more than to go to the American embassy and get on the next flight back to the U.S. But Jean knew that wasn't an option for her. There was still work to be done, and she wasn't leaving Haiti until she had done everything in her power to help. Coming up, Jean tries to do her part to get Haiti back on its feet. Now back to the story. For Jean Potius, the first few days after the January 12, 2010 earthquake in Haiti were fraught with danger. With limited supplies and no medical training, she had to escape from the Holy Trinity School's decimated buildings, treat over 300 injured survivors, flee an oncoming tsunami, and ward off the unwanted sexual advances of a male companion, all in the span of 48 hours. When Jean woke up on her friend Florence's couch on the morning of January 15th, nobody would have blamed her if she wanted to make a beeline for the American embassy and get on a flight back to the States. But she refused to let herself be defeated by these traumatic experiences. Although Jean had been through a lot, she knew that many others had been forced to endure much worse in the earthquake's aftermath. She was determined to help as much as she could for as long as she could. She wasn't alone. After the earthquake hit on January 12th, it didn't take long for other countries to mobilize their resources to help Haiti. According to the Associated Press, at least 19 countries, including the United States, Ireland, China, the United Kingdom, and Brazil pledged manpower, supplies, or financial aid to Haiti. In the immediate aftermath, President Barack Obama voiced what had made the situation in Haiti so tragic. For a country and a people who are no strangers to hardship and suffering, this tragedy seems especially cruel and incomprehensible. Nonprofit aid organizations like the International Red Cross Committee also jumped to Haiti's aid. Within 24 hours, the Red Cross had dispatched a plane carrying an 11-person staff of relief experts, including engineers, surgeons, and specialists in reuniting families separated by disaster, as well as economic security, logistics, and IT specialists. 
Additionally, the International Red Cross sent a plane carrying over 40 tons of supplies, including medical items, body bags, and water treatment materials. Concerned citizens around the globe donated whatever they could to help the relief efforts. In the first 48 hours, the American Red Cross raised over $8 million in individual donations. The United Nations pledged $13.34 billion in aid to Haiti through 2020. The Haitian people would need every cent of it. But even with supplies, money, and manpower coming to Haiti, it would take time before the relief efforts could get established. In the meantime, Jean still had work to do. Before reuniting with Florence, Jean had been heading back to Holy Trinity to collect robes, sheets, and blankets to hand out to the people camped at the College St. Pierre. With Florence's chauffeur, Dominique, and his SUV now at Jean's disposal, her job had gotten much easier. But that didn't mean the task was without risk. Although aftershocks were becoming weaker and less frequent, there was always the chance that even the slightest tremor could bring debris crashing down. To reduce the number of people walking through the house, Jean and her companions formed a human chain system to transport the salvaged goods from Jean's room to Dominique's car. However, this plan also meant that Jean would have to spend more time in the guest house. Many of the robes were on hangers, so she had to take the extra time to remove the hangers before tossing them down into the courtyard below to avoid injuring her companions. Luckily, the structure remained intact, and Jean was able to salvage everything she could from the guest house without incident. She brought her items back to the grateful bishop at the College St. Pierre, who promised to hand out the robes and blankets to those most in need. Although Jean was eager to help, the day's effort had completely exhausted her. She realized she was running on fumes and that she would only end up being a burden if she tried to keep going. She reluctantly informed the bishop that she'd return in a few days once she regained some strength. It was 9 p.m. by the time Jean got back to Florence's house. But before going to bed, she tried calling her friend Linek Huban, who had been heading to jazz band rehearsal at Holy Trinity when the earthquake hit. Jean had yet to find out if Linek was okay. With Haiti's infrastructure all but destroyed, she wasn't optimistic that she'd be able to get a call through. But she kept trying. And finally, Linek picked up. He was safe. He told her that he had been driving by the National Palace not far from Holy Trinity when the earthquake hit. He had seen the ornate palace crumble before his eyes. Realizing the severity of the situation, Linek tried to turn his car around and go home, but there was so much rubble blocking the street that he had to go back on foot. It took him over five hours to make it back to his house, which, thankfully, was still standing. If he hadn't been heading to jazz band rehearsal, Linek would surely have died. He was a professor at Kiskeya University, which was holding a reception for incoming students at the time of the earthquake. The entire campus was leveled, and everyone inside was killed. Both Jean and Linek were too exhausted to talk for more than a few minutes. 
But the conversation lifted a huge weight from Jean's shoulders. She could finally rest easy, knowing that her friend was safe. The next few days passed without incident, allowing Jean to regain much of her strength. It turned out she would need it. On the night of Monday, January 18th, rain came to Port-au-Prince. The water created extreme health risks for the earthquake survivors. According to Rory Campbell, a correspondent for The Guardian, it was feared that rain would turn camps into quagmires, trigger landslides, and spread disease. Thankfully, the brief rainfall proved to be an aberration. January is part of Haiti's dry season, and although the wet season was on the horizon, there was at least some time to establish relief efforts before heavy rains came. Along with the threat of rain, there were still aftershocks to contend with. At 6.15 a.m. on the morning of January 20th, a 6.1 magnitude earthquake awakened Jean from her sleep. 6.1 may seem close to the original earthquake's 7.0 magnitude, but the Richter scale is measured on a logarithmic curve. This means the original quake was 10 times stronger than the one Jean felt on January 20th. Even so, it was enough to put Jean on high alert. The next few days passed fairly smoothly. Jean started volunteering with the Red Cross to provide hands-on help to the other survivors. That weekend, she met with the bishop at the College St. Pierre to discuss salvaging instruments from the wreckage of the Holy Trinity Music School. With all the destruction around them, Jean firmly believed that bringing music back into people's lives could do wonders for their spiritual health. Jean's salvaging expedition on the morning of January 24th was the first time she'd be entering into the school building since the earthquake. The smell of death and decay still hung in the air, disturbingly reminiscent of the scent of beef jerky. Many rooms and passages were blocked by debris, but she was still able to enter some practice rooms and recover a few instruments. It wasn't enough to make a full band, but it was a start. Jean was encouraged enough that later in the day, she began informal music lessons at the College St. Pierre, teaching the children some simple songs and vocal exercises. Over the next few days, she kept returning to the school to search for more instruments. On January 26th, as Jean explored some of the music school's offices, she spotted a violin on the other side of a desk. It seemed to be in good shape, so she leaned on the desk to try to reach it. The sudden addition of weight on the desk was enough to destabilize the whole room's structure, and the floor began to tilt down towards a ruined stairwell. Somehow, Jean was able to grab the violin and get out of the office before the floor collapsed. After that, she concluded that she had salvaged everything she could from the destroyed school. It was time to move on and begin rebuilding. Coming up, we'll follow Jean's efforts to restore the Holy Trinity music program and trace the progress of the larger rebuilding efforts in Haiti. And now, the conclusion of the story. 
Once Jean Potius was able to get back on her feet after the earthquake in January 2010, she began the process of restoring the Holy Trinity Music School by salvaging whatever instruments she could from the building's wreckage. But before the school could be rebuilt, its remnants had to be destroyed. The demolition began on the morning of January 27, 2010. Jean and a few other staff members gathered to watch. It was hard to watch the school they'd spent years working in be swept up into a pile of rubble. But Jean refused to dwell on the past. She was determined to move forward into the future. On January 29th, Jean began regular classes at her makeshift school at the College St. Pierre, teaching the children living at the refugee camp on the school's soccer field. By February 1st, over 100 children came to her class. Two days after that, Jean was able to hold her first brass band rehearsal using the instruments she had salvaged. Many of them were in bad shape and out of tune, but it didn't matter. They were making music. But moving on from the trauma of the earthquake proved harder than Jean had anticipated. Over the coming days, weeks, and months, she would often find herself at the ruins of Holy Trinity, watching the workers as they slowly made their way through the rubble. On March 29, 2010, about two and a half months after the earthquake, Jean was watching the workers demolish a collapsed hallway when they uncovered the remains of one of her students. Jean felt tremendous guilt as she looked down on the young man's broken body. When the earthquake had hit, she had shouted for her students to run. This one had been the only one to make it out of the auditorium, and he had lost his life as a result. Rationally, Jean knew that she wasn't responsible for the young man's death. Her instruction to run was pure instinct. But she couldn't help but think that if he hadn't listened to her, he would still be alive. Consumed by the thoughts of her dead student, Jean was distracted over the next few days. One night, as she was heading to her tent, she fell and broke her wrist. The injury turned out to be a blessing in disguise. Now that she was unable to do any real work, Jean was able to use her recovery time to rest and heal her body and mind. While the memory of her dead student would always haunt her, she began learning to let go of her guilt. As Jean began the slow healing process, so did Haiti. It would take a long time, and it would sometimes get ugly. But Jean hoped that both she and her adopted country would emerge stronger in the end. The damage from the disaster was staggering. According to the UK-based Disasters Emergency Committee, 220,000 people are estimated to have died in the earthquake, with another 300,000 people suffering serious injuries. A little over 100,000 homes were destroyed, with a further 200,000 badly damaged. In total, 1.5 million people became homeless after the earthquake. In addition to the human losses, the earthquake did huge damage to Haiti's infrastructure. 60% of government and administrative buildings and 80% of the schools in Port-au-Prince 
were irreparably damaged. As Jean had noticed, in the earthquake's immediate aftermath, there were almost no emergency services to help the survivors. In fact, according to CNN, there was only one hospital in Port-au-Prince that was able to treat patients in the first day and a half after the earthquake. With all the logistical problems the country was facing, it was in desperate need of outside help. Of course, the money and support that came pouring in from the UN, foreign governments, and aid agencies meant nothing without action on the ground. Even with an ample supply of medicine, food, and water, the problem was distributing them to the survivors. With almost no heavy equipment to clear debris from the roads and shanty towns taking up much of the open space around Port-au-Prince, there was almost nowhere for relief groups to set up a command center. In the words of Dr. Arthur Fournier of the University of Miami, we need something like a military-like operation geared for relief. It needs strategy, tactics, and logistics. We need all three. And a military-style approach was exactly what they got. The U.S. was quick to mobilize troops to help with the relief effort. The Pentagon has put military units on alert, and when asked about the possibility of troops being sent in, General Douglas Fraser, the head of U.S. Southern Command, said it's under serious consideration. We're looking at the possibility of sending a large deck uh, amphibious ship that will have a Marine Expeditionary Unit embarked on that. Fraser says about 2,000 Marines could get there in the coming days. The aircraft carrier Carl Vinson should arrive in the vicinity tomorrow, carrying helicopters and other supplies. Sagar Megani, Washington. But even the help of soldiers wasn't enough to organize the chaos. According to an article by Patrick Martin of the Center for Research on Globalization, as trucks from the World Food Program delivered loads of food to the refugee camp at the National Palace, thousands of people came flooding out into the streets. When it became obvious there wasn't enough food for all of them, the crowds started to fight. To escape the chaos, troops from the UN peacekeeping mission fired rubber bullets at people who crowded around food trucks, eventually pulling out and leaving sacks of rice to be fought over. With food and other supplies proving extremely hard to come by, some desperate Haitians began to take matters into their own hands. According to Brett Popowell of the Toronto Star, after the World Food Program delivered supplies to an orphanage in late January 2010, a group of bandits immediately came and took the supplies for themselves. Making matters even more difficult, the rainy season came early. Normally, it wouldn't be expected to start until March, but in 2010, the heavy rains began in February. An article in The Guardian described how on February 18th, a torrential downpour soaked shelters made of bedsheets that were home to hundreds of thousands of people in Port-au-Prince and added urgency to the race to supply tents and plastic sheeting. Six months into the relief effort, little progress had been made. Although 23 major charities had raised $1.1 billion, only 2% of those funds had been released for use. By July 2010, shelters had only been built for 10,000 of the 1.3 million people who remained homeless. 
While President Obama praised the relief efforts so far, he also acknowledged there was still a lot of work to be done. The president says the global relief effort was vital. It saved lives uh, and it continues uh, as we look at how we can reconstruct and rebuild. But a half year later, only a fraction of those made homeless by the quake have new houses and many thousands remain in desperate need. Still, Press Secretary Robert Gibbs says rebuilding in Haiti was always going to be a challenge. You were dealing with the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere the moment before the earthquake struck. And he denies the slow pace means the relief programs have failed. Mark Smith at the White House. In October of 2010, another challenge emerged, a cholera outbreak. It had originated with a group of Nepalese UN peacekeepers whose waste had contaminated a river that was used for drinking water. By March of 2016, it was estimated that 9,200 people had died as a result of the cholera outbreak. But a study by Doctors Without Borders concluded that the true number might have been much higher. Another blow came when it was revealed that the American Red Cross had misused nearly $500 million that had been donated to the rebuilding effort. The organization had set in motion a number of relief projects, but due to a lack of organization, few of them had been seen through to completion. A 2015 report by ProPublica revealed that despite claiming they had provided homes for over 130,000 people, the true number was much lower. The Red Cross had only built six permanent homes in all of Haiti. According to a congressional staffer named Lee Mullaney, who helped shepherd the Red Cross's shelter program, some officials within the organization wanted to know which projects would generate good publicity, not which projects would provide the most homes. The report also detailed how the Red Cross gave funds to other groups to mount projects the Red Cross didn't have the expertise to organize itself. However, many of these other organizations took portions of those funds to cover their own overhead and management. This meant that only a fraction of the money actually went directly to the Haitian people. A major problem outlined in the report was that the Red Cross relied too much on foreign professionals rather than on Haitian citizens who would be able to navigate local politics much more easily. Although 90% of the Red Cross's staff were Haitian, very few of them were part of the organization's leadership. According to internal documents obtained by ProPublica, the project manager, a position reserved for an expatriate, was entitled to allowances for housing, food, and other expenses, home leave trips, R&R four times a year, and relocation expenses. In all, it added up to $140,000. Compensation for a senior Haitian engineer, the top local position, was less than one-third of that, $42,000 a year. And therein lies perhaps the biggest problem with the foreign aid struggles in Haiti. Not enough money is going to the people who actually need it. While there are people out there like Jean Potius who continue to spread music education throughout Haiti, there are many more who don't put the needs of others ahead of themselves. But amidst all the crisis, there is hope. 
Jean Potius is still working with the Holy Trinity Music School, which has established a temporary facility while the school complex is rebuilt. Her nonprofit, Instrumental Change Incorporated, continues to support music education throughout Haiti. But it's also important to note that there is still a long way to go in the recovery process. According to the World Population Review, 42.3% of Haitians struggle to access clean drinking water, with 72.3% living in unsanitary conditions. These figures are just about the same as they were before the earthquake hit. So while the country may be described as recovered from the earthquake, that means very little for the people who were already living in poverty before the disaster. The rubble may have been cleared from the streets, but Haiti remains in crisis. For more information on Jean Potius, amongst the many sources we used, we found Shaken, Not Stirred, a survivor's account of the January 12, 2010 earthquake in Haiti by Jean Potius, extremely helpful in our research. Thanks for listening to Survival. You can find all of ParCast's shows on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Survival was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Paul Liebeskin, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. Survival is written by Alex Benedin and stars Irma Blanco and Tim Johnson. 